Yeah, she'll teach you how to be artistically you. Not afraid to talk about what's taboo. So don't play small. Join the podcast with Nikki Collins. Autism Unmasked. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Autism Unmasked. My name's Nikki Collins. I'm the autism coach and author of Through Autistic Eyes. You can find out more about my coaching and my book on my website, theautismcoach.co.uk. And today I am joined by the lovely Sarah Duggan. And basically she is another guest of mine who is here for a chat. And we do have some spectacular conversations. Sarah is a late diagnosed autistic lady, and she was also diagnosed with ADHD last year. She had a real battle with getting the diagnosis and coming to terms with it afterwards, which we'll talk about in today's episode. Sarah has recently left her job as a neurodiversity advisor which is helping people with diversity inclusion and helping people to develop strategies from the ground up. And now she's kind of in an in-between stage and wondering what direction she should go in. So thank you so much for joining me for our wonderful conversation, Sarah, and welcome to Autism Unmasked. Well, thank you for having me, Nikki. I'm thrilled to be here. Very exciting. Yes, it is exciting. So Obviously, late diagnosis, especially amongst women and those who present autism in a non-classic, non-tick box way. You've gained your diagnosis at 24 and then your ADHD last year. And that's that's given you some answers. But what kind of got you into seeking these diagnoses? What got you to the doctor's office and the assessment centre or whatever you want to call it in the first place? (laughs) I was having trouble in work so I did an English degree in 2011 for the love of the subject didn't really think about employability and I job hopped uh, around and and worked in various jobs in various environments in various sectors and nothing really was sticking Um, and it was only really in my 20s when I was dating and living independently and um, doing all the things you do in your 20s really that I came a bit unstuck because my my risk averseness uh, well it just wasn't there um I put myself in some quite precarious situations um unbeknownst to me really and so I had a lot of support from family to go and seek answers to this really because this your classic kind of young 20s girl quite naive perhaps quite vulnerable at times um young and inexperienced and I didn't really um I I definitely kind of it was that but it was amped up it was quite dangerous at times and I was definitely thinking about it now as well while I was at university um I'm an extrovert but I have a lot of social anxiety and Mm. I was definitely masking a lot and trying to fit in was very overly concerned of what people were thinking about me was very anxious and also had various misdiagnoses where my mental health was concerned during that time that just didn't add up no amount of talking therapy or or SSRI tablets or anything was really doing an awful lot to ease this very severe anxiety that I had at the time 
Um, and and so it wasn't then, yeah, until I was 24 and I'm now 30 when I got the diagnosis that it did start to click in my mind. It made sense why I I, my, I couldn't find my, I found it hard to find my place in the world of work, for example. Mm. Um, it made sense why I struggled when I met potential romantic partners or, or even tried to make friends with people um, why sustaining those relationships is really difficult um, and it also made sense of my um, very high level of sensitivity that I'd always had um, which is a beautiful thing to have in, in many ways but I, it was a real struggle at other times because I felt everything and, and thought about everything so deeply um, that when I was happy I was really happy and when I was was sad I was I was really heartbroken and there was no in between I was constantly booming and busting around in all areas of my life really until it came to a bit of a crunch point in my 20s mm. yeah it's 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 common it's a common story isn't it and those diagnoses that you saw how easy was it to actually get to get those to well to get I'm going to use the word labels and I just want to say in kind of inverted commas that when I use the word labels, I see labels as a gateway to understand yourself as a deeper level rather than pathologizing somebody. So where people say, what do you want to give yourself a label for? I don't mean it in that way, just to make that clear to anyone who's listening. So I love the conversation around labels, which I'm sure we'll get into more during this chat, but it was surprisingly easy for me to get to the diagnosis, actually. What was what was less so was what came afterwards. So I, I had the classic go to the GP and fill in this almost looked like a lifestyle questionnaire, but it wasn't. Um, and then I had to, they applied for funding through our local council for me to get um, my autism diagnosed um, with a psychiatrist. So I went to meet her um, some weeks after and we had a three hour uh, assessment conversation she was constantly scribbling as I was talking and asking me very broad questions um, about my life that I had to reflect on and now we know as well that I have ADHD I can understand how difficult that was to have to remember all of this stuff uh, and connect the pieces um, and then and then at the end it was a very straightforward um almost she just she told me that um, our assumptions had, had kind of been on the money and I, I did have what was at the time Asperger's, but now, of course, they don't use that as a diagnostic label anymore. Um, and she said, oh, you know, you'll have your report sent to you in the post in X amount of time. And But here's a letter you can use now to um, to use for your own records. And I was really excited isn't quite the word, but I was I was really kind of thrilled to have that validation in that moment. And I was chomping at the bit to think, right, got the news. What do I do with this? Um, where do I go? Who do I need to speak to? What do I need to do? Um, mm. Almost instantly, without it being conscious, a kind of what can we do to fix this attitude, I guess. Um, and I asked her and she said that she's told to signpost um, patients to what, would, what was Autism um, West Midlands, the local branch of, of the charity that supports autistic um people where I am yeah <laughs> um but she said I'm, I have to be honest though I don't think it's going to do much for you because their services are really tailored to people at the other again with the labels and the language that which I none of it is really comfortable on me but the people at the other end of the spectrum to where I am sitting 
Um, and I was like, oh, so what do I do in that case? And she, her answer really floored me. And it was a very simple, I don't know. Um, and so if the expert that's diagnosing you doesn't know what to do with you, that instantly set up a chain of events, really, that sent me in a bit of a spiral. So it was great for about 10 seconds and then the reality hit. <laughs> yeah, I remember that spiral well. And I I experienced that too. So I was sat at my desk. I'd been doing training with somebody who worked a lot with autism. And I liked what she was teaching and I wanted to learn. So I learned from her. We went for a coffee. I, I signed up to her course. She taught me what she knew or a fraction of it and then through that I realized that a family member is autistic and then I had a sneaky suspicion that I was most likely ADHD before that but then a couple of months after I realized that the family member was autistic the penny dropped and I thought oh there's too many similarities shared coincidences and overlaps and parallels here Mm -hmm. and that led me on down the rabbit hole and I just went on this downward spiral because how could you go for such a large portion of your life it was 34 for me so 34 years not knowing something so fundamental about yourself and I was so anxious that I'd gone away with a friend we'd gone on an adventure to Scotland so that's the ADHD side very much like come on come on come on but the autistic side was highly anxious at that period of my life and I physically hid in the footwell of our car when she went to ask where we could park up for the night to somebody on site and I just I couldn't people I was literally so shut down by that point that I could not people to that extent and we were saying before we started recording about like diagnosis and the majority of people seek a diagnosis for the validation and to get the answers and it isn't just a yeah you're autistic it's like yeah celebrate some people it is but a lot of people there's an adjustment period it's like shaking up the proverbial snow globe and then having to let it settle back down Mm -hmm. I definitely had that. I think I'd slipped the net for quite a while as well through childhood because I was very academic, very bright, uh, very studious. I worked really hard um, and I did really well at school. I didn't have many friends um, or or many close friends until I was in my later teen years when I was more conscious about fitting in. Um, And I did realise that if I didn't start communicating um my capability um you know and and befriended more people than the teachers that I wouldn't be making the most of of my my academic um potential so I started putting myself up you know against my own inner horror for things like the school council and head girl and trying to wiggle my way in with with more popular kids at school um and there are various ups and downs of that, but I think that was the um that they they'd say when they diagnosed me that that was kind of what kept me under the radar um as well um and so when I got the diagnosis i I did have an initial validation moment, as I said, the ten seconds of yes, and then the psychiatrist said that she didn't know where to put me, and the first thing I did um 
was I just jumped on my Instagram and I told everybody in an Instagram post that I'd had this diagnosis. Um, but I didn't even give myself a beat to process it for myself to figure out how I felt about it or what it meant to me. I kind of felt that I should outwardly and proudly tell everybody. I, I jumped in head first and didn't give myself the breathing moment. And then I think, particularly doing the job that I did last year, it took years and probably the diagnosis of the ADHD and various other things um, for me to now be in a, in a great relationship and for that to be into my partner to be really supportive, to have family support, to be older. Um, I've, I've been coming to terms with it in a bit of a delayed grief processing kind of way. So last year when I was doing the strategic advisory work on neuroinclusion, um, I was so caught up on the excitement of being the autistic ADHD doing that work to make things better in the workplace for other people like me when one of my biggest struggles had always been getting into work and having the big shiny career that I'd always wanted and known deep down I was capable of but I didn't ever quite get the opportunities to make that happen and um, I was so focused on how cool that was that I didn't think and I couldn't have predicted for a second how claustrophobic at other times that was going to be for me and mm. um, and I I'd had this feeling for a while internally that there was a discomfort there. There was a bit of an inner turmoil. There was something I couldn't pinpoint. And it was only when a therapist said to me, because I was going to her saying that I felt really fraudulent because I was outwardly at work, very proud and positive about being autistic. But in my personal life, private life, I was almost leading with the anxiety um, and, and walking around saying, hi, I'm Sarah, I'm autistic. If I do this, it means this. If I do that, it's not this. And please don't hate me or think any less of me because I'm probably going to do that. Um, I, um, yeah, I didn't recognise that it was probably a lot of stuff to do with internalised ableism um, and that I'd absorbed it. Um, and it, But it wasn't, it was a weird one because I never felt like any individual was actively stigmatising me or doing anything against me personally. Mm. That's not been my experience. It was more me stigmatising advertising me um and so it's I, I'm now trying to come to a healthier place in my relationship with my diagnoses and make sense of them in a way that kind of says I'm content and um kind of peaceful about my diagnosis I'm quite happy to be autistic I'm not ashamed of it but I'm equally not uh, in this you know you're autistic automatically so you're a superhero camp either I think that's a bit disgusting um, I'm just content and at the same time no longer leading with it and allowing it to define me because I've tried on as we've talked about all the labels over the years I've called myself autistic that was a bit too close for me personally as an identity yeah. first way of talking about it so I've gone back now to kind of if I have to talk about it I say I have autism or I have ADHD um, it's a bit more of a factual statement there's this myth of normal and labels are um social constructions anyway that we humans as you said have devised to help us engage with with things that are too big or too complex for us to understand mm. makes us feel more safe and secure and yeah as an engagement tool great but what we've stopped short of doing is really dismantling the way we use these labels how we think about them what they mean so no one's looking under the label um, and asking me what about my experience of being autistic the autism community, as well-meaning as it is, is very black and white. 
mm-hmm. and the language that is used if people have a preference and of course identity first is just that's my preference mm-hmm. because um because I wouldn't call myself a person with gay or a person with white or a person with autism I am Nikki I'm autistic I'm I'm a white woman and mm-hmm. I'm gay that's my preference and it just happens to be shared by a lot of autistic people but how you actually identify I don't identify as disabled but I don't dis I don't have a, a thing about people who do use that label so it's about preference and it's about asking the questions and being okay with what other people and how other people prefer to identify and there's no right or wrong way to do that and I got my ADHD diagnosis that they said it was actually the the autism and in this case that enabled me to slip under the slip through the net of the ADHD diagnostic process because the rigidity the structure um of that and the anxiety of that pens me in and kind of does keep me stuck when I feel like the the ADHD side of me just want to send me up like a bottle of fizzy pop. Um, and so that um, definitely, it, it, yeah, definitely hindered the ADHD being diagnosed. But then at the same time, it's helped me achieve a lot more than I probably would have, I think, um, as an ADHD or without um, the autism because... I was I was just so um, disciplined and very I know perfectionism is a big thing in ADHD as well but it's definitely about for me in autism it's always been about mastery it's been about achievement I've got this insane innate drive um, and that kind of rigidity once I buy into something and I, I care about something and I love something um, mm. the classic special interest conversation I guess but I go in and I'm going really hard um, and I've always been an, a natural kind of over a high achiever and um, that yeah, so it didn't help on the diagnostic front but I think I've achieved a lot more academically for example than I would have um, before because I just persevered and persevered and worked um, really damn hard to make sure um, I, I sustained that level of achievement as well. Exactly. And that can be both a blessing and a curse, because when you're trying to operate at that level all of the time and the things that other people are finding simple and you're going, huh? And it's like a bit of a head scratcher and wondering why you're struggling so much to do what seems so easy to others. Mm-hmm. It just causes burnout and it just causes you to lose interest and focus and that's when the sort of the the depressive thoughts come in and everything starts to implode and then again you start thinking what's wrong with me and that again is where that label of autism or ADHD or whatever it is becomes so useful because you're now measuring yourself against the correct standards and it's not that neurotypicals have a higher standard it's not that neurodiversity neurodivergent or neurospicy people. I know you don't like di- divergent. So neurospicy though. Neurospicy, neurodistinct, <laughs> neurodifferent, whatever it is. <laughs> there's there's no, no neither are better than the other. We just process differently. But the thing is, it's not understood. So it's like Apple and Android. They're not compatible. 
So we need to work out a bridge to communicate between the two. This was what I was really passionate about in my work last year when I was bringing uh, neuroinclusion strategies to um, a global organisation. And um, because I was, my stance was actually people think neurodiversity is just relevant to people with these specific conditions with autism, with ADHD, with dyslexia. But we're all as human beings born with unique brains. So mm. as a species, human beings are neurodiverse. Um, and this is where the neurodivergent labelling is useful as a pointer um, because it actually does say it's the people that um, think in a way that significantly diverges from the social norm, which, again, is a human social construction. We've always made a rod for our own backs in many respects um, from that norm that they're the, you know, the neurodivergent people, um, that we're all actually neuro- – well, you can't say an individual is neurodiverse because it's grammatically incorrect and also just reinforces ableism. But um, as a species, we're all neurodiverse. So I was on a mission to make this conversation relevant to everybody who sits back and says, well, why should I care? It does, you know, it makes no difference to me because I I don't have autism or ADHD. Why should I prioritise neuroinclusion in the workplace? Um, well, actually, you should because our whole species is what's what's good for us is going to be good for you um and I think a link to that the the labeling for me couples with another problem which is the Equality Act and this is going to be controversial but I don't see why I should stick my hand up in the air like I'm at an AA meeting and say hi I'm Sarah I've got you know disabling autism and tick the box, you know, to say I'm disabled, to then get the support I need and make this potentially stigmatising disclosure. Um, when I should just get, we should all just be supported. Um, and so for me, it just seems like um, so, so many hoops to jump through constantly and so much uncertainty. It's like no wonder people mask. Um, and the, the big focus is, companies seem to want to try to encourage employees to 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 drop their masks and the buzzword you know psychological safety and all of these things that are thrown Mm. around um but actually most of them don't understand what genuine inclusion on a day-to-day basis means and really looks like because they just see if they can report on how many people with this they've got where they are then they can be seen to be supporting because they're doing what the Equality Act tells them to do and it's all in line with that legislation but how does that serve me or anybody else in the workplace who is is really scared to open up about their disclosure um, because of people making those assumptions about disability and about what neurodiverse, wrongly what neurodiversity is and about what autism means, for example, um, which is why I've been forced, I think, into a bit of a corner over the years, almost like as a learned behaviour or an adaptation, as I said, because of years of being misunderstood uh, and getting my fingers burned, I'm now really open about my diagnosis from the off. Mm. Um to try and, as I said, preemptively strike um, on on these situations so that I can get in first. But I shouldn't have to feel like I need to get in first. That is my bugbear. Um, but what it does do, and on the plus side, is open up this um, this conversation 
so I can have a, a conversation with people around labels and dismantling the labels and parking their assumptions and speaking to me about my experience first if they want to know about asking questions mm. about looking beyond the label um so it's it can be positive in that respect but I do get it just adds to my burnout really when I'm constantly faced with um all these situations where I have to tick the disability box because I don't identify like that but I know for example in a recruitment process if I don't tick said disability box I won't get my recruitment process reasonably adjusted so which to help me shine which will then result in a in a potential job so I'm, I feel like on the one hand I'm backed into a corner and on the other hand it's a great platform for uh, a conversation if you can at it from a place of humility um, so it's like a constant payoff it's like how how selfless am I feeling today am I going to protect myself or am I going to try and do something a bit better that could make things better for everybody else um, I totally totally get it and I know that a lot of people will resonate with that as well because maybe instead of having a disability box we could make it as you say neuroinclusive and even have an option on there what your preferred like communicate what your preferred learning styles are what your preferred communication style is if there are any adjustments that you'd like to request for the meeting such as a list of examples tick these it's not hard to make those changes Let's face it, the world is a lot brighter physically, like lights, than it was 10, 15, even five years ago. It's so bright out there, car headlights, and it's really in your face. It gets louder, brighter, and it's a sensory nightmare. So if we can increase it, why can't we decrease it a little bit? And that's just like, that's in the work, outside the work, just... Make it all inclusive. Come well, on. Well, this was my struggle, hard. I think, because the only way I felt, you know, sometimes I'd, I'd really bang my head against the brick wall at work, particularly um, when I was jostling with this identity crisis issue almost, because I, for every small win you have that's where neuro, the dial on neuroinclusion gets turned, you realise at the end of the day this you know this it's systemic the nature of the beast is systemic is systemic and so unless we get a sledgehammer to society there's really not an awful lot we can do about it because it is a gut it and start again job really mm. but that that can be as demoralizing as that is it shouldn't um stop us from trying to to do better and make progress and create a more inclusive world um, but it just was at the same time as the, the claustrophobia, I think it did weigh quite heavily that I never felt like I was getting anywhere particularly fast. Um, because for the whole sort of society to be neuroinclusive or inclusive in any way across the gamut of human diversities, we'd all have to agree that we're, we're all born equal in every single way, regardless of all of our differences. And that's just impossible. There is no thing as a, a perfect inclusivity. Oh, um, no. And so it, it was definitely, it was a, a very rewarding experience and and um, I really loved it. Um, but I'm I'm not sure at the moment for me whether it's the healthiest thing to keep building on what I achieved in that year. I'm hoping that everything will come out in the wash and I'll reroute in the future and build on this as a consultant. I'd really love to do that. Um, but I think for now, I have to prioritise my own well-being for a moment and see that there's there's some work still to be done here um 
with myself in my own relationship before I can serve anybody else in any way. And that's a really healthy place to come from, because if you aren't at your best, it's very hard to give other people the best of you. So working on yourself and making sure you've got a really good self-care schedule is it's, it's one of the building blocks of sort of success. And yes, success is subjective and it's different for everybody. But that baseline of success is to be functioning. Exactly. And I think self-care is um, something particularly um, I definitely struggle as an autistic person with ADHD and the way those two interact and um, definitely struggle with self-care and all of the self-compassion and building in um, my own self-soothing strategies into my day. Um, and so mm. it, was, it sounds so simple, but I can't sit and read a book. I can't watch films. Um, I can't do all the classic stuff that people you know would would use to relax I don't relax I can't switch off my brain and I'm exhausted more than the average Joe I would say because my brain has to work double if not you know triply hard to keep up in a world that's not built for me to thrive and so I'm I'm shattered before I've even got to the evening most days and so I have to really manage my energy but managing your energy when you're desperately also trying to fit in in this world is it's really quite hard um and I haven't yet found the the right mix of stuff or whether I've got the balance quite right and I'm not sure I will yet for a long time um but I'm definitely being more proactive about the trial and error of that um and yeah that's where I'm focusing my attention I think for now good good sounds like a very positive kind of way to focus your attentions and energies so just to finishes up Sarah obviously I know that you have been a classic ADHD job hopper Ooh. over the years and some might say that that's going from one dead-end job to another but it was for a long time yes <laughs> so any idea what's next for you because obviously you're between careers at the moment a little bit of burnout there that you're recovering from a little bit of getting to know yourself at a deeper level I mean as humans we're like onions anyway aren't we there's always another level and another layer to uncover to get to our core and it sounds like you're very much on that journey and making great progress within that but what's next for you any ideas um I'd really like to I think I I definitely shone brightest last year in my um, strategic advisory role when I was building relationships with other people and so I'd like to pursue something in that space I think albeit whether it's in diversity and inclusion or whether I I hop into another industry that's still to be seen but um, that as a basis and then get back to my writing really my writing has always been the thing that I've really loved to do I did an English degree first off as I said and mm. uh, I've always been a voracious reader writer but what what's kind of happened as I got older is that I'm really struggling to read um, particularly, particularly I think with my ADHD um, that's become a bit of a barrier and it's kind of broken my heart a little bit because it's always been the thing that I loved most and I struggled to do it um now and um, so I would like to bring more writing into my work and um, definitely build on the relationship skills and then maybe even dabble in entrepreneurship I've definitely got um, a very entrepreneurial brain and I see things before other people seem to see things 
and I'm very good at creatively solving problems and coming up with with great solutions and innovation and I definitely have quite a few ideas knocking about but I would just be concerned I think about overwhelming myself as an entrepreneur at the moment so I need to do more of a deep dive in the future on that I think um, but there's loads of loads of things to be getting on with I think at the moment committing to to writing um more be that even if it's just on a blog for now or on LinkedIn or regu- regularly publishing again would be really great um but I'm just I'm casting my net um quite widely in various places be that communications based roles um or in inclusion or in new industries that I've not even considered or I can bring all of my transferable skills and experience I kind of looking at opportunities on a, a an opportunity by opportunity basis but I think the culture is the most important thing for me an inclusive culture a forward thinking organization um that, that does truly care really about their their employees and does meaningful work I'm very purpose-driven so I'm, I'm looking for somewhere I can make an impact um so there's, there's I kind of know what I'm looking for but I also am not 100% sure quite what it looks like in the detail um yeah. totally get it I totally get it and I think just let it settle and yeah. we all come to a crossroads at multiple stages of our life and when you are sitting thinking uh what do I want to do actually it's that's where the creativity lives in those spaces and your brain because it is so just amazing it comes up with things and if you just give yourself the space and allow yourself to sit and wait and I don't mean like sit and wait for years. You do have to be proactive <laughs> at some point, <laughs> but it, it does eventually filter through. And there's nothing to stop you from doing all of what you've said in some capacity in a self-employed form, in your own time, on your own schedule, working with clients and people that you know that you can truly make a difference to and have an impact in with. Okay. I think that's the really great thing about where I'm at right now in terms of my relationship with my diagnoses in that because I, I felt like I'd never I didn't lose myself I never went on some eat love eat pray love kind of adventure to rediscover who I am because I never I never left me I just got squished under all these layers of either other people's stuff or I did a classic um autism ADHD thing and I went questing for information because I thought if I can really get under the bonnet of this thing and understand it then I can sort it. And actually, there's nothing to sort here. Um, so now I, I understand that better. I'm hoping it will clarify a lot of stuff about what my my purpose is, perhaps, or what I want to do moving forward. So I'll get a lot of clarity. Um, so that's really exciting, actually. Um, yeah. It is exciting. And I wish you all the best with it. And I have no Thank doubt you. that when you come out with a plan or an idea you'll nail it yeah I do love a plan so I hope so. and the, the thing about this job hopping malarkey is that yes I've job hopped but I'm also the queen of the pivot um I've always figured it out so far and so I will keep figuring it out <laughs> exactly anyway. exactly there's a fantastic TEDx talk called I'm I'm not sure actually what the name of it is but it's about multi-potentialites 
So and it's it's absolutely brilliant. I'll link it into the show notes below. And if anyone wants to go and have a nose, they can do. It's 12 minutes and it's it's got to be written for ADHD. I was thinking people. as associative thinkers. Yeah, uh, it's, it's amazing. When we take bits and bobs and we suddenly build this, this uh, dreamscape kind of situation, I, I feel. So that's definitely... Totally. Well, thank you for joining me today, Sarah. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And I'll drop your LinkedIn profile into the into the notes below. So if anyone does want to follow your progress, they can do so. And thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Vicky. And for our listeners, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never have to miss an episode again. Thanks for tuning in to Nikki Collins, our team.